0: Chapter Twelve of Phoebe Daring This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Phoebe Daring by L. Frank Baum. Chapter Twelve How the Governor Arrived. Oh, is it you? asked Judith busily. "'Come and help us, dear, for we must have the place in apple-pie order by four o'clock, and there's a lot to be done.' "'Dear me, what's the excitement about?' asked Phoebe. "'I've just had a telegram from Cousin John, the governor, and he'll be here at four o'clock,' answered Judith. "'Really?' "'Honest for true, Phoebe. Isn't it fine?' Phoebe sat down with a bewildered expression. "'All the darings well knew of Judith's famous cousin, the governor of the state.' whom they always called the great man, in discussing him. But until now none of them had ever seen him. He was not their cousin, although he bore that relation to cousin Judith Elliot, whose mother had been the sister of his mother. There was no doubt of his being a very great man, for he had not only been twice elected governor of the state, but people declared he might some day become president of the United States. So able and clean had been his administration of affairs. The very idea of their entertaining so celebrated a personage made Phoebe gasp. She looked at Cousin Judith with big eyes, trying to conceive the situation. "'I have often invited him to come and see us,' continued Judith, her voice full of glad anticipation as she worked. "'But he is such a busy man, he can never find time. At last, however, he has remembered me, and his telegram says he has been north on state affairs and finds he can spare me a few hours to-day on his return. So he'll be here at four o'clock, stay all night, and take the morning train on to the capital. "'All night?' cried Phoebe. "'Yes, I'm so pleased, Phoebe. You're sure to like Cousin John, and I know the other children will adore him. It's his custom to dine at night, you know. So we'll just have a lunch this noon, and our dinner at supper-time, as they do up north. The youngsters won't mind, for once, although it may give them indigestion." Phoebe took off her hat and began to help Judith rid up the house. The rooms were always so neatly kept that the girl could not see how they might be improved, but Judith had the old-fashioned housekeeper's instinct in regard to cleanliness, and knew just what touches the place needed to render it sweet and fresh. Awe fell upon the younger Darings when they came in from school and heard the news. Don, who had been chattering noisily of the Riverdale cornet band, which had been hired for Saturday, fell silent and grave, for the governor's coming was an event that overshadowed all else. Becky, serious for just a moment, suddenly began laughing. "'The great man will scorn Riverdale, and especially the Daring's,' she predicted. "'We'll look like a set of gawks to him, and I warn you now, little mother, that if he pokes fun at me I'll make faces.' It's straight goods that a governor has no business here, and if he comes he'll have to shed his city airs and be human." Judith laughed at this. "'Don't think of him as a governor, dear,' she said. Just think of him as my cousin John, who used to be very nice to me when I was a wee girl and has never been any different since I grew up. I'm sure he's giving us these few hours to rest his weary brain and bones and hide from the politicians. Not a soul in Riverdale will know the governor is here unless he is seen and recognized." "'Is he ashamed of us, then?' inquired Little Sue. "'Why should he be?' "'Because we're not great like he is.' "'But we are, Sue,' declared Phoebe. The Darings are as great, in their way, as the governor himself. We are honest and respectable, and the votes of just such families as ours placed Judith's cousin in the governor's chair and made him our leader and lawgiver. "'But he's got a head on him,' remarked Don emphatically. "'We all have heads,' answered Phoebe. "'Only our brains don't lead us to delve in politics or seek public offices.' "'Mine do,' asserted her brother. "'I'm going to be awful great myself some day. "'If the little mother's cousin can be governor, "'there's no reason I shouldn't become a—a—a a, a policeman,' said Becky, "'helping him finish the sentence.' But you'll have to grow up first, Don." This conversation did not seem to annoy Cousin Judith in the least. On the contrary, she was amused by the excitement the coming of the great man caused in their little circle. "'I wonder if the Randolphs would lend us their automobile to bring him from the station,' mused Phoebe at luncheon. "'How absurd,' said Judith. "'Cousin John has two feet, just like other men, and he'll be glad to use them.' "'Will the band turn out?' asked Don. "'No. You mustn't tell anyone of this visit, for the Riverdale people would rush to see their governor, and that would spoil his quiet visit with us. Keep very quiet about it, until after he is gone. All of you.' "'What'll we do about the marching club, Don?' asked Becky. "'They were to meet on our grounds after school, but now that the great man is coming—' "'You need not alter your plans at all,' said Judith. I want you to do just as you are accustomed to do. Be yourselves, my dears, and treat Cousin John as if he were one of the family, which he really is. You mustn't let his coming disturb you in any way, for that would embarrass and grieve him. He has no family of his own, and it will delight him to be received here as a relative and a friend, rather than as a great statesman." It was hard work for the children to keep the secret to themselves when at school that afternoon. But they did. It was only little Sue who confided to a friend the fact that the biggest man in the whole world, except the kings and princes of fairy tales, was coming to visit them. But this indefinite information was received with stolid indifference and quickly forgotten. Phoebe went with Judith to the station to meet the four o'clock train, at her cousin's earnest request, and her heart beat wildly as the train drew in. The girl had pictured to herself a big stalwart gentleman stern-visaged and grim, wearing a Prince Albert coat and a tall silk hat, the center of a crowd of admiring observers. She was looking for this important personage among the passengers who alighted from the cars, when Judith's voice said in her ear, "'Shake hands with Cousin John, Phoebe.' She started and blushed, and then glanced shyly into the kind and humorous eyes that gleamed from beneath the brim of a soft felt hat. The great man was not great in stature. On the contrary, his eyes were about on a level with Phoebe's own, and she saw that his form was thin and somewhat stooping. His coat was dusty from travel, his tie somewhat carelessly arranged, and his shoes were sadly in need of shining. Otherwise there was an air of easy good-fellowship about Cousin John that made Phoebe forget in a moment that he was the governor of a great state and the idol of his people. "'Bless me, what a big girl!' he cried, looking at Phoebe admiringly. "'I thought all your adopted children were infants, Judy, and fully expected to find you wielding half a dozen nursing-bottles.' "'No, indeed,' laughed the little mother. "'The darings are all stalwarts, I assure you. An army of able-bodied boys and girls almost ready to vote for you, Cousin John.' "'Oh, suffragettes, eh?' he retorted, looking at Phoebe mischievously. "'Not yet,' she said, returning a smile. "'The women of Riverdale haven't organized the army militant, I'm glad to say. For an I have an idea, I would never join it.' "'You're wrong,' he said quickly. "'The women of the world will dominate politics some day, and you mustn't be too old-fashioned in your notions to join the procession of progress. But I mustn't talk shop to-day. What's that tree, Judith, a live oak or a hickory? What a quaint old town!' and how cozy and delightful it seems! Some day, little cousin, I'm going to disappear from the world and rusticate in just such a happy, forgotten paradise as Riverdale." They were walking up the street now, heading directly for the Daring residence. The governor carried a small traveling bag and a light overcoat. Those who saw him looked at him curiously, wondering what guest was visiting the Daring's. But not one of the gaping villagers, suspected that this was their governor. Arriving at the house, the great man tossed his bag and coat in the hall, and drew a hickory rocker to a shady spot on the lawn. Asking permission to smoke a cigar, his one bad habit, he claimed, he braced his feet against a tree, leaned back in his chair, and began to gossip comfortably with Judith, who sat beside him, of their childhood days, and all the queer things that had happened to them both since. When Phoebe wanted to run away and leave the cousins together, they made her stay. So she got a bit of embroidery and sat on the grass, sewing and listening. The children came home from school, awkwardly greeted the great man, in whom they were distinctly disappointed because he did not look the part, and then rushed away to follow their own devices. By and by, cousin John glanced through the trees and was astonished to observe in the distance an army of boys and girls engaged in drilling, their white caps and sashes and their badges giving them an impressive appearance. "'What's all that?' asked the governor, curiously. "'That,' replied Judith, with a laugh, "'is the Toby Clark Marching Club.' "'Toby Clark—Toby Clark,' he said musingly. "'A local celebrity, Judith?' "'Yes,' a lame boy who has been arrested for stealing. These children resent the unjust accusation, and I've organized the marching club to express their indignation and their unfaltering loyalty to their friend.' "'Good!' he cried. And then, after a moment, he added, "'Unjust accusation, Judy?' "'Absolutely unjust,' she replied. He took down his feet and sat up straight in his chair. "'Tell me about it,' he said. "'Phoebe can do that better than I,' was the answer. "'She is one of Toby Clark's staunchest defenders. "'Now then, Phoebe, fire away!' She told the story, quietly and convincingly, beginning with Judge Ferguson's sudden death, and relating Mrs. Ritchie's demand for her box, its disappearance, and the finding of evidence on the premises of Toby Clark, who had been promptly arrested and held for trial on the charge of stealing." She told of Mr. Spate's unaccountable defense of Toby, employing a lawyer, furnishing his bail, and then giving him an asylum in his own house, and concluded with the donation of fifty dollars by an unknown person, through Spate's Bank, for the benefit of the marching club. The governor listened without interruption or comment to the end, but it was evident he was interested. When Phoebe had finished, he rose to his feet, and walked over to where the boys and girls were drilling, where he stood watching Don explain the maneuvers and direct the exercises. The great man noted every child's face and marked its expression. Then he strode among them, and facing the astonished assemblage held up his hand. "'How many of you believe Toby Clark is innocent?' he asked. The yell they gave was decidedly unanimous. How many of you would be willing to take his chance of going free? continued the governor, in an earnest tone. There was hesitation this time. I would, cried Don. Then he turned to the others. All of you who would be willing to take Toby Clark's chance of going free, step over here beside me. Allerton and Becky, inspired by loyalty to the cause, moved over at once. The others stood silent. "'It is this way, sir,' said Doris, who had no idea who the strange man was, but was impressed by his voice, nevertheless, for it was a voice accustomed to command respectful attention. "'We all know that Toby is innocent, but we are not at all sure he will go free.' "'Why not?' "'Because the law is so unjust at times,' replied the little maid, "'and a very bad man who is a lawyer is trying to prove that Toby is guilty.' "'It looks like he was, the way they figured it out,' added Becky. "'Only, of course, he can't be.' "'Sometimes,' said the governor, as if to himself, "'the innocent is made to suffer for the guilty. "'Now, it seems to me the question is this. "'If Toby Clark is innocent, who, then, is guilty? "'Find the guilty one, and Toby goes free. "'Otherwise, the law may be perverted and justice miscarry.' They looked very sober at this. And Don blurted out, "'We're not detectives, sir, and we don't know who is guilty. Hasn't the state any way of protecting its people? Isn't there anyone whose business it is to see that justice don't miscarry? Our business is just to stand by Toby Clark, because we know he's innocent. And we mean to show everybody in Riverdale that we believe Toby Clark couldn't do anything mean if he tried. He's good stuff all through, even if he is a poor boy. And whatever happens, we'll stand by him to the last. The governor nodded his approval. That's right, he said. Stand by your friends. There's no better motto than that. I wish you success. Then he turned and walked away. Where is Toby Clark now? he asked, when he had rejoined Phoebe and Judith. He is at Mr. Spate's house. He doesn't go out much, for this dreadful charge against him makes him ashamed to face people," replied Phoebe. "'I want to see him,' said the governor. "'Will you take me to him after dinner?' "'Gladly,' cried Phoebe, sudden hope springing up in her breast, for the governor was a power in the land." He said nothing more on the subject until after dinner. Phoebe almost feared he had forgotten about Toby Clark for during the afternoon he chatted with Cousin Judith, and during dinner he joked with Becky and Don, and even with Sue, the demure and big-eyed. Cousin John won the entire family without effort. And even Aunt Hyacinth, hopping about in the kitchen, told the tea-kettle that "'Dis your governor ain't no difference from a plain everyday man. He just naturally takes to de whole kitten caboodle, seeing he's cousin to Miss Judy, and not stuck up near refrigerated a bit no more than them blessed children's is." But after dinner he walked into the hall and picked his hat from the rack, which Phoebe decided was a signal that he was ready to go to Toby Clark. So she threw on a jacket and joined him, for the evenings were getting cool of late, and together they strolled through the back streets, avoiding the business part of the town, and so reached Mr. Spate's house. End of chapter 12 Recording by Brian Keenan